Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. We are summing up 10 of our favorite podcasts of all time. We're doing this because it's the end of the year 2016. If you're listening to it well into 2017, just go back in time a little bit and think about starting the year over. What we wanted to do was find clips from interviews that we've done. We've flown all over the country to interview some of the just really the greatest guests you can imagine. We basically wanted to give you the big sort of self-help, tangible takeaway nuggets from these interviews so that you could start 2017 with a, a framework to do your best possible work to achieve excellence and to grow your business. So I'm really, really excited about this episode. I think there's going to be a lot in here for you. I do want to start off with Mark and Brian Canlis. Again, Canlis Restaurant has won, I think, 16 or 17 grand awards in a row from Wine Spectator Magazine, one of the finest fine dining restaurants on the West Coast. They're there in Seattle this beautiful restaurant overlooking Lake Union. I've been blessed enough to go there a couple times and to become friends with Mark and Brian. What strikes me about Canlis Restaurant, the food is great, of course. The wine list is amazing. What strikes me about the restaurant, though, is customer service. Uh, When you sit down to eat, you have five or six waiters waiting on you. They're paying attention to you the entire time. They're really working to customize a dining engagement with you that just delivers incredible results. The customer service is so great at Canlis, they don't even have valet tickets. When you pull your car in, they just remember that you, wearing this outfit, got out of that car, and when you go to pay your bill or you stand up to leave, the entire wait staff works together to go find your exact car. The customer service is incredible. So I flew to Seattle to sit down with Mark and Brian and just ask them about customer service. Of course, the biggest paradigm shift in the story brand framework is the idea that your customer is the hero of the story and you are the guide. And I just can't think of very many businesses who understand that philosophy better than Canlis Restaurant. Here's a clip from my interview with Mark and Brian Canlis. The restaurant business has to be extremely stressful. I can't imagine being in it. Uh, It's one thing for you to have this inner commitment as owners of the restaurant because there's so much at stake for you to always have this attitude that your customer is really the hero and you're just there to serve them to instill that in a team though you know when you're gone for them to continue that but i think that's why they love it they're not just taking food to the table they understand that a guest walks in the door and they know tonight needs to matter so that that guest brings their most valuable asset um when they walk in the front door like this almost like a treasure their time and it's their time. Their last meal with their mom. Yeah. Um, or it doesn't their, happen again. Or their first date or their one proposal or... Night before the baby is born. Whatever it is. Only 10th anniversary. They walk in the door with this fragile memory and they're offering it to you and they're saying, can you take care of this? Mm-hmm. Um, they're not coming to eat. They're coming to eat. They're coming to drink. Uh, but they're coming to make sure that tonight will matter. Yeah. Uh, and that's what our staff gets so excited about is not serving food and not pouring delicious wine. That's fun. Um, when someone walks in the door with a treasure and asks you to take care of it. They're mm-hmm. asking you to safeguard it. They say, I got something precious here. Is it safe to, to let you hold it for a few hours? Yeah. Not only do, do we hold it, we also charge them for that. Yeah. So it's, it's a vulnerable place for them to be in, and it's an expensive thing for them to be in. And so that's a big charge. So our, our task is to be trustworthy, is literally to have earned um, the reputation that, yes, it is safe for us to hold that. Let us care for that for you. Yeah. That's what yeah. we're that's what we're doing, and that's what we're trying to get the staff to do. And they, we're the best team on the planet. I, I would imagine period. it's hard to get a job there because you're looking for a kind of person who can understand that and engage that dynamic. How picky are you? It's, it's funny. We're, um, Brian is picky. 
But <laughs> I fell in love with that when I interviewed. It is and it isn't. It, um, the people who do get hired aren't the ones you expect. So people with lots of restaurant experience and been waiting tables or for so many years. Oh, very few um, of them have any. They think that no problem, and they're the ones who are like. Ah. Uh, because is it because they learned some other way of doing things? It's just not going to no, work at Canlis. No, no, no. It's because they think they know how to serve. So we're hiring people whose parents did a great job on them when they were kids. We're hiring people who have an inner comfort in their own skin, who mm -hmm. understand the world doesn't revolve around them. Yeah. We're, we're hiring off character. We're hiring people you want to take a road trip with. That's like, one of the questions. Like, oh man, would this person the, survive a road trip with mom? Yeah. Or would she kick him out, you know? And all the Chicago. technical stuff about perfect service, you can teach it. But people who get excited about taking care of other people, um, that's an unusual person. That's who we're hiring. So well, the, last two, just, the last two people we hired have zero restaurant experience. Well, that's just step one, right? Yeah. And step two is just saying, okay, look, prove to me you might be an amazing person. Prove to me that working at Canlis will help you become who you're trying to become. Mm -hmm. uh, not really what. I don't really care what you're trying to become. Like who? Like who are your mentors? Which ways do you want to go? That's a change? question you actually ask. Oh, it's not do we ask, but we like, but a, we're looking at it's it. It's a rule. Process. So you're not just yeah. even even as owners of the restaurant, you're still not seeing yourself as the hero in the journey when you're interviewing somebody. You're seeing. And, and trying to figure out what the journey of this potential candidate to work here is. If we're not doing fit. that, we're using our own staff. <coughs> if I'm not interested in the staff and the journey they're on, then I might as well just come up front to them and say, hey, man, I just want to use you for a little bit for my own personal gain. Yeah. And no one wants to be used. We're in the business of relationships. And that's just that with the guest. That's, that's with the 100 employees, right? Be because so, then in turn, the, the staff will use the guest. They'll say, hey, I'll serve you. I'll, I'll give you what you want and you give me what I want, which is a nice tip. Yeah. yeah. And again, it's using, um, it's dirty. It's and a, a lot of times in the restaurant business, it can get dirty. It can feel like it's economy of very take. transactional. I'll take from you, um, you take from me. Yeah. No and great relationship was ever based on that, right? No, relationships like, aren't transactions. They're actually relationships, which is a scary thing in restaurants, but we, we try it. Well, if our customer is the hero on the journey, that means they are on a journey. They're going somewhere. Every customer wants something. They're trying to achieve something in their life. And the more we can really tune into that journey, in other words, the more we can stop thinking about ourselves and our business and what we're trying to do, and the more we can actually sit down and put ourselves in the minds of our customer. What do these people want? What are they trying to overcome to get what they want? What are the stakes if they do or don't get what they want? And reflect that in our marketing copy the better we're going to do as a business. I flew to Austin, Texas to meet with Ryan Dice. Ryan has become a friend. He's one of the guys I respect most in this world as a business person, not only because he's just excellent at doing business, but he also has this enormous heart for his family, for his team, for his customers. He's just an inspiration to me. So Ryan understands this as well as any business leader that I've met. And in this clip, in this interview, he talks a little bit about understanding that your customer is on a journey and how you would create new products with that in mind. You know, we say at our story brand marketing workshops that as brands, we should position ourselves like the character Q in those James Bond movies in the sense that here's our hero. They're trying to accomplish something that's a life or death stake. They've got to get this thing done. So who do they go visit? They go visit Q and Q lays out all these weapons that James Bond can choose from in order to accomplish his task. Ryan really gets this idea. He creates products that are weapons that his customers can use to achieve a certain goal. Here's a clip from my interview with Ryan Dice of Digital Marketer. Uh, 
a lot of us have a product-centric business. We think when we're going to market or we're thinking about marketing our products or when we're thinking about delivering our products, we think about products. And you talk about the danger, and it goes right into everything we've already talked about, of having a product-centric business as opposed to a customer-centric business. What do you mean by that? So, I, I think about the piano key tie. You're, <laughs> we all remember you're that. You're from the 80s. You're alive. You're plenty old enough in the 80s, right? So, the piano key tie, right? Quite the fashion statement yeah. of the 80s. And that's a product. And I'm sure the person that invented came up with the piano key tie made a killing. Then you think about a brand like Chanel, mm-hmm. right? Now, Chanel is a brand that has been around for decades. A lot of people don't realize that Chanel like exploded onto the scene in popularity because it fundamentally invented the miniskirt. You know, the miniskirt craze of the 60s was kind of started by Chanel. But Chanel didn't say, we want to be defined by the miniskirt. That would have been a product-centric perspective to take on it. This is who we are. This is what we're about. Any more than Apple said, we are defined by the Macintosh, mm-hmm. right? Apple computer took the word computer from the name of their company because they said our company is not defined by the products we sell our company is defined by the people we serve mm. and that's the distinction between having a product-centric business and a, and a customer-centric business a market-centric business defining saying look we have no sacred cows when it comes to product we want to make our people smile and and if today they like miniskirts we're going to give them miniskirts if tomorrow they want dresses down to their ankles we'll give them dresses down to their ankles and if you watch the progression of Chanel fashion over the years, it has changed dramatically. Fashions and tastes change. They only always have and they only always will. If you keep focused on what do our people want and you just keep asking, what do you want? What do you want? How can I serve you? How can I serve you? You'll never go out of fashion. You'll always be hip. You'll always be cool. The second that you decide that your business is grounded in this particular thing, why did BlackBerry, why the heck does BlackBerry not just own the smartphone market, Hmm. right? Why didn't Blockbuster... Just own the, the streaming, and become Netflix, right? It's because they defined their business not by the people they served, but by the product they sold or by the way that they sold it. Mm. And, and so to think, no, no, we exist to serve this market. This is who we serve. This is who we live for. We're going to give them what they want. That's how you last. And if you look at the companies that have done that, that have been around for generations, they made that choice long ago, whether it was very overt or it just kind of happened. But I would encourage everyone who's on right now, and, and the first step to doing this is to do this before and after grid, mm-hmm. to think in terms of your customers, to think in terms of the value that you bring, not simply the product that you sell. I think that's so essential. You know, the very first thing we talked about as we uh, started this interview was we have to listen to our customers. And to me, it's been an evolution. I mean, I started, you know, story brand years ago and you're just trying to get it off the ground. And all you're thinking about is yourself and your pains and your wounds. And how am I going to yeah, make this page? Sure I, like I, sure I sure would like to eat food. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'd like to eat food. Food is good. I like shelter. <laughs> and for every burrito I eat, I've got to give I'd the like government to, three. Yeah. <laughs> Those are the things that you're thinking about. I'd like to keep having a roof. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, you begin to succeed because you've got a good product. And that's where the temptation is to keep thinking about the product. But as Jim Collins and so many other business experts remind us, if we can just get over ourselves, and stop playing the hero in the story. Begin playing the guide, which involves enormous amounts of listening and actual caring. And I think most people are, who are listening to this are like you and me. We actually don't want to get up in the morning and talk about ourselves. We don't. We feel like we have to. And it's counterintuitive to think that I don't have to do that. But I would say, and I would argue, and we've seen case study after case study that, that proves people are richly rewarded by beginning to listen rather than just to continue talking. It's true in 
relationships. Yeah. Why in the world wouldn't it be true in business? Yeah, it is. I mean, I teach like our salespeople always start with a question. What do you know about us? Mm-hmm. You know, so wh- why'd you, why'd you come here? What, what's kind of the thing? What's going on with you? Tell yeah. me what's yeah. going on with you. I interviewed a copywriter. What copy are you frustrated writer. about? Yeah. I interviewed a copywriter yesterday. I've been interviewing copywriters all, all week and I always ask one question like, okay, so if you need to write a piece about an industry you don't know much about, you know, you're going to write it for a company, you know, what do you do? Tell, tell me about your process. And what I want to hear is I, I go and I talk to, I want to talk to customer support. You know, I ask if there's a, a list of customers. What most say is I'll go and do, you know, research. Oh, what does that look like? Well, I'm going to go read blog posts. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'll want to hear, I'm going to find the source. I'm going to ask questions. Then I'm going to shut up and listen. Yeah. I'm going to find a human being. Of that. Yeah, yeah. We interviewed 10 copywriters. One, one had that aspect in that answer. Everyone else would talk about how oh, I Google and I'm going to Google this and I'm going to Google that. I'm going to look for this and I'm going to read this many books and, and all that's fine. But if you're not going to actually talk to your customer and then ask them good questions and listen intently, you're never going to be great at service. One of the benefits from the StoryBrand framework is that it teaches you to position your products and services in such a way that they are perceived as much more valuable. So if you sell something for $19.95, but you create language around that something that is going to help people avoid hassles, that it's going to help people save time, that it's going to help people make money, every time we can position that product and show its real benefits and features, the value goes up. So you could even charge $29.95 instead of $19.95, and the customer would have a more positive experience because they understand the value that they're getting from that product. There are very few companies that add more value to their products than Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A is a $5.2 billion franchise of quick-serve restaurants that we're probably all familiar with them. They serve great chicken. We flew to Atlanta to interview David Salyers, Vice President of National and Regional Marketing. David's job is to increase the understanding of value that Chick-fil-A offers, and he gives us practical tips on things you can do, and often that's within the language that you use in your marketing. Here's a clip from my interview with David Salyers, Vice President of National and Regional Marketing for Chick-fil-A. Can you speak to understanding the internal frustration of your customer and yeah. resolving that? Well, I think you have to go back almost like you what you started with. You have to go back to what is the fundamental purpose of a business? Mm-hmm. And in America, and particularly in our business schools, many times we've defined it as the purpose of a business is to create shareholder value. Right. Or the purpose of business is to maximize profitability. Well, both of those are true, but in my view, and I think in Chick-fil-A's view, it's an incomplete truth. Mm. And when we deal in incomplete truths, we sometimes you know, have unintended consequences. Yeah. To me, the purpose of a business is not solely to create shareholder value, it's to create value for a customer. Yeah. And what most businesses do, if they fall in line with the principle, it's about creating shareholder value or maximizing profitability, they seek to extract value from their customers Mm -hmm. instead of create value for their customers. Right. And there's an old adage that how we view things drives how we do things. Mm. So if we view it as an opportunity to extract value from a customer, we act one way. And if we view it as an opportunity to create value for a customer, we do it another. And you'll appreciate this because of Story Brand. We think of our business as a platform to improve the lives of the people we serve. And that's our goal every day. Mm-hmm. And if we'll do that well, the financial end of it tends to take care of itself. 
Yeah. You you used the example earlier when we were talking. Uh, you put a $20 bill across your forehead. And you yeah. said most, a lot of companies, when they see a customer walk through the door, all they see is that money and they're trying to get that money. Right. And you guys think about it differently, yeah. don't you? How do you think yeah. about it? Well, as you said, a lot of times in training, we'll put a $20 bill on our head and say, hey, if you go to most of our competitors, what have you been trained to do? as it relates to this $20, and the people will say, well, I've been trained to grab as much as I can, put it in the register. It's like they're a human ATM machine designed to spit money across the counter. But in our world, we say, no, we're going to try and create as much value for the money you spend. And the problem is if you view it as an opportunity to extract value, then what you do for the customer is if they know you're trying to grab as much money, guess what their reaction is? They're going to want to keep, keep as much money. Right. And so we set business up as an adversarial relationship where there's a winner and there's a loser. And in fact, if that's the way you set it up, the smarter that business is, the worse it is for you. Mm-hmm. And so what we think about at Chick-fil-A is could we use our gray matter to create more value from you, not scheming up ways to take more from you? Yeah. And if we'll do it that way, then the smarter we are and the better we do our job, the better it is for you. And so we want to. Your whole point when you sit down and say, how do we create more value? How do we create yeah, more value? How do we create more value today? In and fact, any smart consumer is going to go to you because that's the way you're thinking. Bingo. Yeah. Because what they want, what every customer wants is a great value. But value equals what you get divided by what you pay. Well, that goes into my next question. How yeah. do you create more value? Because you yeah. showed me a little grid. Yeah. Most people are, to create value for their customer, they're reducing how much their customer has yeah. to pay. To create value. And you guys think about it differently. Yeah. Um, if value equals what you get divided by what you pay, then the easy way to create value is to reduce what you pay. And the reason it's so easy is it doesn't take much effort, doesn't take much thought, and it works, doesn't it? I right, mean, yeah. you know, you cut things in half, people come in. And so, but it's an illusion in a sense because uh, if you're charging a fair price, if you reduce what one person pays, guess what next person has to do? Mm-hmm. Pay more to make it work out. And so in, in an attempt to help create value for somebody by reducing what they pay, you actually end up having to extract values from someone else to make up that right. deficit. Right. But if we instead say, you know what, we're going to just charge a fair price every day, but we want customers to get increasing value, more and more value all the time, then what you do is you focus on the numerator, the what you get side. Mm-hmm. not the what you pay side. And what we do uh, is we spend all of our time thinking about how our customers going to get more and more value out of what they're already paying. Mm. And so almost all of our marketing, almost all of our development, we've got an 80,000 square foot innovation center. And if you were to come with me and see that innovation center, I could walk you through it. Every project in there is designed to create more value for what people are already paying. I'm not aware of one project in there designed to get people to pay one cent more than what they're already paying, but mm. everything is designed to create more value. And you're, I mean, you're just reaping the rewards of that. Yes. So this isn't just a, a theory. In practice, it works to grow a business. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, one of my favorite interviews that we've done in the past couple of years is a sit-down conversation with my friend Dave Ramsey. We've got to go into the studio at Dave's place. 
Uh, Dave has become a friend, but even before he was a friend, he really just epitomized the story brand framework, especially that sense that you play a guide for the hero. Dave is really successful. He's a wonderful guy. He's written a lot of books. He's got a radio show that millions of people listen to every day. But I promise you, the guy wakes up in the morning and he thinks about you. He thinks about your success and how he's going to help you become financially stable, how he's going to help you become a real ninja when it comes to managing your money. I think at some point, Dave and I haven't talked about this, at some point, Dave probably kind of got over himself. You know, he had a few victories and realized, ah, you know, that's okay. But then he really got excited when he helped somebody else win. This is the key, I believe, to our success. We position ourselves as the guide. One of the things that the guide does, there's a bunch of things in the story brand framework, but one of the things the guide does is they break down the process of doing business with them into small baby steps. He actually calls them baby steps. He shares baby steps that allow you to take control of your money. When our customers walk into a relationship with us and we have some products that might help them, if they sense a kind of fog or if they don't exactly understand how our products work or that it just seems too complicated, they can become resistant to that process and they can pull back. Dave understands the brilliance of walking customers through a process step by step so they never get confused or intimidated. If you offer any sort of consulting, this is going to be really helpful for you. But even if your product is a little bit difficult to understand, even if you're installing lawn sprinklers or a house painter, when you break down that process into one, we come and we assess how long it's going to take us to paint your house, two, we give you a customized bid, and three, we come in and we execute the process perfectly. That sounds like it's just common sense that that's what you're going to do, but your customer really needs those steps to be broken down. It's a great marketing strategy. It's a great business strategy. But let's learn it from the best. This is a clip from my interview with Dave Ramsey. Well, you said something earlier that I thought was fascinating. I think it's a pillar of, of how you've built this organization that a lot of people can learn from, especially life coaches, financial planners. We have a lot of those guys listening. Uh, that you created a repeatable framework. That rather than, I know a lot of executive coaches say, hey, I can make you better, but they don't have an actual curriculum that they take everybody through, which for us, that was a massive shift for me to say, hey, we don't just want to help you with your marketing. We want to teach you seven parts of a framework that you can duplicate over and over. And at that point, our business began to explode. What, what I also love about that is it's actually a narrative framework. And what I mean by that is you're guiding people through a story. What a story is, is a character that really wants something, but they have to overcome challenges to get it. Mm -hmm. And so you identify our characters want to be out of debt. They want to be financially sound. They want to be financially wise. They're up against all sorts of pressure from credit card companies, from their own debt, from past mistakes, from college loans. And we're going to give them a plan, Financial Peace University, that they can go through and come out of that debt-free and also transformed from uh, a financial idiot to a financial, uh, <laughs> you know, whatever, uh, ninja. And uh, that is all narrative. And I yeah. think people are, I think people hunger to live through a story as much as they hunger for water, food, and sex. I really do. And when a brand comes along and says, hey, we'll give you some plot points that you can hit to transform and win. I think everybody says, you know what, I'm paying attention to this guy. And I think that's part of your success. Was that intentional or was it just, hey, we've got to be able to duplicate this for the masses? It was not intentional in the sense of I understood 
the story branding aspect. Um, it was more when you came along, you said stuff, and I went, oh, okay, that's that's why that works. I could see why yeah. it worked immediately yeah. in your framework, and that's why you and I became instant friends. I mean, it was just because, like, yeah, that's how that that's perfect, and yeah, and then come over to our office and show all our people how to do that in these other areas that aren't working. So you know, that's that's what <laughs> I we got. It's true of Apple and Coca Cola; they're all intuitively doing it. Yeah, and what in our case, what we were doing was we knew that uh, the, the the way that we looked at it was. What our people tell us today is that they most like the fact with our brand that it is aspirational and that the inspirational pieces there where money usually doesn't have that. It's usually a root canal discussion. But then also it's a clear path. They always say clear path, clear path, the seven baby steps. You do this and baby step number two is called number two because it's number two. Right. You don't do number three before it because it's called number three for a reason. Right. And we didn't just make this up. There's data behind it, and millions of people have done this. You don't need to fix it. It's not broken. Shut up. Do the plan. And we do that over and 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 over again to where it's drilled into people's psyche that, that they can do these seven baby steps. And the thing that we discovered was from a practical standpoint, I'm a pragmatist, and that's how I back end all this stuff. I'm sitting down with people, and I'm going, okay, you need to get out of debt. You, you need to save for an emergency. You need to get your retirement done. You, you need to get your kids' college saved, and you got to pay off your house. And, and they're going, oh, my God, I'm overwhelmed. How do I eat this elephant? Right. And I, you got to eat it a bite at a time. Well, which bite do I take first? And I went, ah. They want a path. They need a starting point. Yeah. Because the, the elephant's overwhelming. Give me a bite I can take. So baby step one is intentionally very small. That save a thousand dollars a beginner starter emergency fund you, you may already have a thousand dollars so just label it you're done next check but quickly get a thousand dollars because i want a quick win that says i can start the path and i don't feel the three major negative emotions around the issue of personal finance uh shame and guilt i don't feel i feel like everybody else has got their act together and i don't and cynicism everybody teaching money screwing somebody and everybody my insurance guy i don't understand it my investment guy my realtor my mortgage who understands those closing costs you know everybody everything about money is intimidating and everybody thinks everybody else has got it figured out and, and so we just said we've got to pierce through that and let you have some success so you have the power to take you through it because i can't physically carry you through all of it and i'm not giving you any money i'll just show you how and so it's very practical pragmatic to step to step to step to step to step but then there was this hope piece that came in proverbs says hope deferred makes the heart sick but when desire comes it is the tree of life and so once they get that one thing and then they start doing the baby that you know baby step two is the debt snowball and it's the same principle right. you pay off the little one why because i need some success and when i when i start to believe i can do this that's when i change my life and then they turn around and look at me and go you changed my life. <laughs> to which I always say, no, I didn't. Yeah. I just showed you how to change your life. Yeah. Took you through a story. Here's a path. And I would say probably the number one thing that most of the clients that we deal with at StoryBrand could do to improve their business is create a plan. At almost whatever you're doing, just create a plan for people to walk through because everybody's looking for. I call them stones in the creek. Mm -hmm. You know, when you, I used to take guys on this hike up in uh, up in uh, Portland when I lived in Portland, and we'd have to cross this this basically a creek, but it was also it was basically a river. Yeah. And it was top of a waterfall. Man, they got so scared. And then I'd say, Hey, see this see this rock? We're gonna hit this rock. Then we're gonna hit this rock. And people will come so far with you as a brand and if you don't have a plan, they say, Listen, I'm not crossing that creek. It looks too scary. And and, and make the first one an easy one. Yeah, so they can just step right in. Yeah, just confident. Okay, maybe. All right, maybe. And then by the time they get to the end of the thing, they're studly, man. They can leap. 
Yeah. You know, because the confidence has come because they are walking their path. Okay, we're learning a lot with these clips. One of the interviews where I learned the most from, and I'm still learning from, and I'm still trying to execute, is my interview with Toy Sweeney. Toy Sweeney was wonderful. She is one of the stylists who works with on-air talent at QVC. And when I say stylist, I mean she actually helps them understand what they're supposed to wear. And so in the interview that we did, if you want to go back and listen to the entire interview, she talks about what every man should have in their closet if they want to be perceived as a competent executive, what every woman should have in their closet, how to do these things efficiently and not spend a ton of money. It's a terrific interview. In this little clip, though, she actually talks about what the colors we wear mean. Uh, You know, that red power tie that Donald Trump always wore. Was that effective? Did that accomplish something? What colors do we need to wear and what do they mean? You know, this all goes into positioning ourselves as the guide for the hero. If we position ourselves as the guide, we need to be somebody who demonstrates competency, competency and authority. And one way we might be able to do that is by choosing the right colors to wear. It's a crazy interview. It's a lot of fun. But here's a clip from my interview with Toy Sweeney. Okay, so as far as colors, we need a blue shirt, we need a white shirt. There's something to colors communicating things, right? Does blue communicate something that white doesn't? Does white communicate something? Should we never wear red? What do colors mean? Yeah, well, yeah, and color color has a tremendous effect on the way that people perceive you, right? Hmm, yeah. um, it sends these emotional signals and we're like, well, why? So here's the thing with that. From the branding perspective, personally, it really think about what you want to do, right? So if you want to communicate that you are powerful, right? I like to give this scenario. If you are the CEO of like the children's hospital, right? And you need to give a big presentation and you need to raise money, mm-hmm. then you don't want to wear black because that's very authoritative and it can be- become very aggressive, mm-hmm. you know, but you want to wear blue or you want to wear white because, you know, white is uh, signifies newness and freshness and blue is um it's very calming um you know it's the reason why ups chooses brown and why the ug company chooses brown because it sends the message that it that they're grounded huh. and that you can really really rely on me wow i had you know, no idea and so, you know, red can sometimes be seen as very aggressive, but it not, depending on how you use it, again, when, where you're using it. So red for men says it sends a different message. If a woman, rather, is wearing red, a man is going to read that color different than another woman. Hmm. So if you have a big meeting and you're meeting with another woman and you were not in charge of that meeting, you may not want to wear red. Hmm. Um, because it could be seen as aggression. So you may want to wear, you know, and, and if you're saying, okay, well, I don't want to wear black, then you wear navy because it'll give you the same feeling of authority, but it's just a little, you're backing off a little bit. Um, as opposed to if you are the CEO of a company and, you know, you're trying to get your team on board with the message and you want to get them really excited, then you want to wear a little bit of orange somewhere because orange gets you really excited about something. Ah, that's interesting. So there's a, I mean, there's some, some sense to the idea that these presidential candidates who line up in these mass debates, you know, mm-hmm. I'm thinking of primary season, they're, they're wearing a red tie almost all the time. And if they showed up with a yellow tie, I I would probably think less of them. And it's it's weird how that works. There, yeah, there's something to that. Because yellow signifies, can can signify uh, cowardness, right? Hmm. Um, hmm. Yellow really, you know, it's like a happy color, right? You, yes, of course. But 
it depends again on the situation, but if you're running in the primaries and you're wearing yellow, then that's just going to send a different message. So they primarily will wear, you know, blue or red or, you know, even lavender, you know, these are just kind of things that are very close to spirituality and it kind of sends a very calming hmm. effect, yeah. you know, but if you need to make a, a stance that you are the authority in something, then black is the way to go. Think about the big brands. Why do you think the Apple boxes and everything's white Hmm, you know know. when when they launched right it was because hey here's something new hey here's a way for you Ah. to think different so it's white because white signifies that when you look at companies like chanel you know chanel is a leading a leading um brand in the fashion industry so the logo and everything is black and it's white Hmm. you know and so it gives you that it says hey i'm an authority here's something new here's something fresh go this way Oh, that's awesome. Okay, so we need to be thinking about the colors that we're wearing too. Let me ask you this, because you reminded me of this as you were talking. When is it appropriate for a CEO, a leader, somebody in the C-suite, a business leader, somebody who wants to make an impression, to go ahead and take off the tie and just wear an, uh, an unbuttoned you know, top button in a meeting? You see the president doing this, you see other leaders doing this, and you know it's strategic. When is that important to take, take off the tie right now, leave the coat on, wear the suit, when, when do we need to do that? I think that any time that you need to appear, you know, in a space of humility, anytime that you're talking to your people, mm, yeah. you know, you, when you need to lower your voice and say, listen, I really need to, you guys to get on board with this. Mm, you can trust I'm one me. Of you. I'm one of you. I'm one of you. And I know that you have a need and I'm going to do everything that I can to address that need. Gotcha. You wow, know, because I'm not your boss right now. Like we're in this together. I got you. That's kind of what that is. That is fantastic advice. Instead of walking into the room, making sure the tie is on and being authoritarian, sometimes we got to take it off, say, hey, let's get in the trenches together and figure this thing out. And that's good advice. Okay, by now, we're dressing well, we're positioning ourselves as the guy, we're sharing baby steps, we're adding value to our products. I mean, if you just pause this podcast right now and just execute it on everything we've already learned, you're probably going to grow your business. All right, if you do grow your business, you're going to get really busy. And what do we do when every opportunity that comes to us is a good one? I remember when I was a kid, it was yes, no decisions. They were good opportunities. They were bad opportunities. And as I became successful, there were only good opportunities. And then there were only great opportunities. The deal is I couldn't actually execute on all those great opportunities. Then I had to learn how to manage myself and manage my time. And so this interview, we sat down with Rory Vaden. He's a good buddy of mine, lives here in Nashville, runs Southeastern Consulting, wrote a book called Procrastinate on Purpose. And it's about learning how to invest our time, how to not manage our time, Rory would say, but how to manage ourselves within time. So in this interview, Rory's going to teach us to get a radical return on our investment when it comes to time. He's basically going to try to convince you, and I think he's right, to invest a little bit of time creating systems that duplicate, that expand your time in the future. He's also going to hit on a little bit, so I wanted to include this in the interview because I thought it was a really good nugget, on how to delegate. A lot of us are running sub $5 million companies, which means you're probably doing everything. But how's that company get to five to 10 million if we don't learn to delegate? So I wanted to include that little clip of the interview as well. Here's a clip from my talk with Rory Vaden. I don't want to let you go, Roy, without actually just giving us a cursory explanation of the five permissions that you're giving people when it comes to multiplying their time. 
permission number one, the permission to, to ignore. ignore. We've all got to start yes. practicing this. Everybody today yep. start practicing saying no to something, especially those time thieves that are getting that are just stealing your dreams. Your dreams are beautiful. Their dreams are helping your family. They're helping your staff. We aren't just saying no on our behalf. We're saying no because this is going to cost people money, career, yes. time. That's the significance Emotional calculation security. is adding all those other things into the equation. Got to start saying no. Permission number two is the permission to invest. It's the automate part. Yeah. What are you giving us permission to do there? If I ask the average person, hey, do you have two hours open in your calendar today that you could set up online bill pay? They would be like, no. I don't remember the last day I had two hours open in my calendar. <laughs> right, right. You guys remember what it felt like to be bored? There was actually a time in our <laughs> lives where we were bored. I don't remember what that feels like, but- they would say, if I had two hours, the last thing I would use that two hours to do is set up online bill pay. But a multiplier would look at that differently. A multiplier goes, look, if I spend two hours today setting up online bill pay, and that saves me 30 minutes every month for paying my bills going forward, then after just four months time, I will have broken even on that investment. And then every month thereafter, I will be getting something that we call ROTI, return on time invested. And one of the catchphrases from the TED Talk and everything is that automation is to your time what compounding interest is to your money. Mm, yeah. So in the next generation, I think cost savings is not so much about saving money as it is about saving time. But you have to give yourself the permission to invest because you will never have the time to set up a better system. You will never have extra money just laying around to set up the better system. Just like wealthy people never have extra money laying around to invest. You have to give yourself the permission to give up something in the short term to make that investment. This is the third permission, delegating the permission of imperfect. Yeah. Is that the permission to say, I have liabilities and I need somebody else to cover for this? So here's how this works. When it comes to delegate, we usually say, like if you ask the average leader, are there things you're doing every day that someone else could be trained to do? They would say, well, yeah, of course. And you go, well, why, have, why haven't you taught them to do that? Right. They would say, well, it's just faster for me to do it myself. And so I want to introduce something called the 30X rule. So the 30X rule suggests that you should consider spending 30 times the amount of time it takes you to do the task once yourself on training someone else to do that task for you. So for example, let's say it takes a task super simple, five minutes a day. And you go, it's not a big deal. It takes me five minutes. I knock it out. The 30X rule suggests that you should consider spending 150 minutes, 30 times five, 100, so two and a half hours right. training someone to do that task. And here's where I lose people. They go, Roy, that is so stupid. Why would I spend two and a half hours training someone to do a task that I could do in five? And the answer is you wouldn't- it's 30 days later. Unless you make the significance yeah. calculation. Because when you think about- that time, five minutes a day for just one year is like 1,250 minutes on that task. So you're really, over the long period of time, it makes sense. The answer is just as obvious, but it's the complete opposite of what you thought originally, which is you should absolutely spend that time because you're going to get a net return that's dramatic. I mean, if it's you know 250 working days in a year. So it's not really a time issue. It's really a perfection issue. Right. Well, that's interesting because I think there'd probably be a lot of pushback from listeners saying, yeah, but they're not going to do it the way I want it done. And my experience has been, if it is something that only you can do the best at, you should do it. And that should be in your wheelhouse. But this is almost never the case. When I have asked people to take over territory for me, almost always with my staff, with very few exceptions, 
they've shocked me at how much better they were at it than I was. So not only am I getting compounding interest on yeah. my time, I'm actually getting a better work done on that than I could have done myself. And I would say, if you really think that they're not going to do as good a job as you, then you've hired the wrong person. Right. They, you should be hiring people, as we always say here, who are smarter, smarter and better than, than, you. than you are. So here's the thing about that. Actually, the person who's afraid of them not doing it, they won't do it as well as you. I'm going to edify that and say, you are absolutely right. They will not do it as well as you the first time, mm. maybe the second time, maybe the third time. But when you make the significance calculation, once that person does it for the hundredth time, just like it took you a while, exactly what you're saying, Don, they're not only going to be able to do it as well as you, they're going to do it better. Okay, that was a great interview with Rory, and I wanted to continue on that theme talking about how we manage our time. I'm convinced that you know cash flow really is important if you're trying to run a business, but also uh, how much time you have in the bank, how much time you have available to be creative, to be strategic, to think about how you're going to run your business. Continuing on that theme, I'm going to share a bit of an interview with Claire Diaz-Ortiz. Claire was one of the original executives at Twitter. She has since uh, left the company and started a really important business called A Family. <laughs> She's got a bunch of kids and is doing well living in Argentina with her architect husband. But she is just obsessed with how she uses her time. And she actually wrote a little book called Design Your Day. It's worth picking up, a book called Design Your Day. And she talks about how to focus on the 20% of things you've got to get done that matter most, how to figure out what those 20% are and expand on those. We are probably wasting a lot of time in time traps, things that suck us in, but they're just not that important. But to understand what really matters, what's going to have the highest impact and focus most of our time on that is going to give us the greatest results. Here's a little bit of my interview with Claire Diaz-Ortiz. I really loved your concept of less is more and this idea of spelling out less because I'm a big, I mean, I'm a big believer in just focus and the more you can get off of your plate, the more you're actually going to do. Wasn't it Warren Buffett who said the difference between sort of a billionaire successful businessman and the average Joe is the billionaire almost always says no to everything? Isn't that amazing? It I mean, is it's, true. Have you read um, Greg McEwen's book, Essentialism? Yes. And I love that book. So, I mean, he's just been such, such a teacher for me. I've been doing this sort of year-long program with him this year where we kind of have retreats each quarter. And it's just been amazing in terms of helping kind of clarify my thinking and everything. And I think that it's funny that I wrote this book, Design Your Day, before really getting involved in his world because so much of it overlaps. It's really so much of, you know, this concept of doing less so that you can achieve more is all about paring down. Yeah. And I read I read your book at the same time, uh, maybe a month after I read uh, Essentialism. I love the idea that both of you kind of hit on this, that, you know, by choosing one thing, you're choosing not to do something else or by choosing, mm-hmm. you know, there's opportunity costs with every decision that we make. And so now when somebody says, hey, can you come speak here? Instead of going, oh, yeah, you know, I could use that money. I'm actually sitting there going, this is going to cost me time with Betsy. It's going to cost me time away from the office. The opportunity costs, even financially, is might even just be break even. And uh, it's fascinating to me. When you begin to think of uh, not everything is a yes or no, it's a more complicated answer than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Les, can you walk us through L-E-S-S? 
Sure. So the overall idea is do less. So the D was kind of deciding what's important. So that was word of the year and and getting some of those annual goals down. And then the right. O is really organizing your life to to fit those priorities because I think goals without purpose are, I don't know, dirt or something. There should be some <laughs> great phrase, right? Um, so the less is is all about how you're going to organize to to get to hit those priorities and hit those goals. And so the L in that is about limiting what you do to your best 20%. And so again, what is happening here is we're looking at the 80-20 rule or Pareto's principle, which says that 20% of what you do will reap you 80% of, mm. of your results, right? And so mm -hmm. the, the, the converse of that is that we spend 80% of our time spinning our wheels to just get 20% of our results, yeah. right? So the concept in limiting what you do to your best 20% is basically an exercise I walk you through in the book that... Um, more or less what you're doing is you're making a master sheet of all the activities you take part in, whether they're, you know, things like cleaning the house and spending time with your wife or, you know, going to a meeting or, or traveling for a client engagement, whatever it is. You make a list of those activities and then you also make a list of kind of your big wins. So the big things you did in the last year that were really, really successful. And basically in the course of this activity I walk you through in the book, you end up trying to identify what are those things in your life that really are your best 20%? Hmm. Uh, so, you know, for me, spending time with my toddler, that's obviously my best 20%. Um, some of the work I was doing did fall into that best 20%. You know, you kind of get a sense for it as you, as you go through the exercise. And ultimately, at the other end, you come out with a bunch of stuff that are, is not in your best 20%. And so it's trying to figure out, okay, what do I do with all this other stuff? And so some of that is stuff that you ideally delegate, whether it's, you know, you hire someone or you already have someone on your team, you delegate that out or you hire it out. And some of it is just stuff that, you know, no one should be doing ever, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, and many of us, you know, email comes to mind, certain emails come to mind when you say, you know, <laughs> never do something. Um, yeah. So that's sort of the exercise and it's super powerful. And I think that a lot of it is also about mindset. I mean, we have to say that here because, you know, we're lots of entrepreneurs are, are listening to, you know, this podcast. And as entrepreneurs, a lot of people are kind of watching the bottom line. They don't want to make the expenditure on something that they can do um, mm -hmm. just as easily. And it's, and it's totally the wrong way to think. I mean, when you do this exercise, you see that oh, hey, um, yeah, it's true. I'm only spending two hours a week doing my own travel bookings, but two hours a week of your precious energy when in reality, you don't have 40 hours of, you know, energy yeah. Yeah. work each week, you've got to take that off your plate. And, you know, you start to sort of do that and sort of figure what is two hours of my time really worth? And it's not worth doing this. This should be sent to someone else. Yeah, that sort of I love it. And then also just, uh, you know, since I really understood this concept, thanks in part to your book, um, I get a lot more time to play because I realize all of that is wasting time. Really, this is what is profitable for my company. That doesn't take me that long to do. If I just focus on mm -hmm. that and I say no to all these other meetings, mm -hmm. I get to play. I get to enjoy my life a little bit. Well, and that's critically though, Don, the play is critical for your productivity. Oh, it I mean, absolutely is. There's no question. Essential. Yeah. yeah.
Well, in 2016, I obviously got to interview a lot of great people, but I wasn't expecting to interview one of my heroes. The first business book that I ever read was The One Minute Manager by Ken Blanchard. I read it right out of college, and I was learning to be a bit of a leader myself at a retail establishment, and the the guy who ran the company gave me this book, and I couldn't believe somebody had broken up leadership and management into such easy steps. And so I have been thinking about Ken Blanchard for 20 years. I've read a ton of his books. He's written over 60 of them, I think. And he's just one of the wisest people on the planet when it comes to understanding how to manage people and really how to better people's lives. Because if you understand how to manage, then you're actually making their lives better and not making them miserable because they don't have to suffer a terrible manager. So Ken has just done great things to make the world better. I went out to San Diego and I took his entire team through the story brand framework to clarify their messaging and marketing. He's got 300 employees out there at the Ken Blanchard company. And I was grateful and lucky enough to get to spend some quality time with Ken himself. I got over my nerves very quickly because he's one of the most disarming people that you will ever meet. In the interview, I would go back and listen to the whole thing if you have time, but in the interview, Ken talks about the sort of steps that you take to lead an organization through the accomplishment of a project. If you want to release a new product, if you're buying a new company, what are the steps that you need to go through in order to get everybody on the same page? The final step, though, is one that we often miss. Once the project is complete, the team needs to start over, and we have to step away from the company understand where we want to go next, and articulate the vision. A lot of us listening to this, you may be at a place in your company where you've accomplished some great things this year, but there's a bit of a plateau. Everybody's just resting now or coasting, and the next step may be the step that we often miss. That is starting over, pretending that we're just starting this company and we're going to go after this new product creation or this new goal stepping away from the company and articulating a new vision. This is the clip from the Ken Blanchard interview where he talks about the importance of that final step. There's a problem that I think a lot of leaders have, and I've had it, and it's the best possible problem to have. What do you do when you reach your goals? What do you do when your team succeeds and you've got to get everybody mobilized again. Pete Carroll is a friend with the Seahawks, and I know how hard it was after they won the Super Bowl to mobilize that team and give them a new vision to accomplish the thing they'd already accomplished. Yes. And a lot of times, even in our personal lives, when we accomplish a great goal, we're tempted to go into a depression because we don't have that drive and focus that we used to have. How do you restart and reboot a successful team to keep going? And I asked this question because you said something earlier when we were talking before we started the podcast recording here. You said that education, as you talked about the journey of getting your PhD, was an endurance sport. Yes. And when you said that, I thought, boy, business is an endurance sport too. Yes. That the longer you just keep moving in that same direction and keep plowing your field, the, the higher likely you are to be successful. Yes. How do you keep a team going and going and going? Well, you know, one of the things I think that we don't take enough time is alone time. You know, I hmm. read Scott, who was a quite an entrepreneur here, because Marge and I really stayed in San Diego because we ran into a group called the Young Presidents Organization, YPO, and they or people had to become president before they're 40 years old and have mm. at least 50 people working for them and, and all. And, and Red said that he is really clear that he has to spend at least twice a year going off by himself for two or three days and just thinking about, okay, where are we now? Where do we want to go? And get some quiet time and all. Because I think we get so into doing that we don't have time to decide what 
we next want to being, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And uh, Marge and I have always had a wonderful thing. Her mom and dad bought 300 feet of lake frontage on one of the Finger Lakes, Skinny Atlas in upstate New York for $300 in 1946. <laughs> and Margie's been going there since 1946. And Marge and I were, you know, we kind of were maze bright is when I was a college professor, I thought it was so stupid to teach a course in the summer just to make a little extra money. Let's go to the lake. <laughs> yeah. And so like we're taking off now on the 28th of June and we'll be back, you know, about the 10th of September and I do writing there and all that kind of thing. But we stop the train and get off. And so we'll have a meeting with a company. And they, you know, when we were more actively involved, they would be saying goodbye uh, to us. And then we'd have a meeting and come back. I mean, we would stay in communication. But we took that time to get off the train. And I think it kept us re-energized yeah. yeah. in terms of – Gives where, you a new vision. To, yeah. Because I think – that if you get caught in the rat race of business, I love Lily Talmadge. She said the problem with the rat race, even if you win it, you're still a rat, you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I think that you have to, you know, have some time to think and and walk and and, and all. Where it's not just ten minutes, but uh, say, you know, where are we now? Where do we want to go? And and you could even invite some, which we do periodically, invite some of the leaders to come up to the lake and yeah. over the years and sort of think things through. Well, it sounds like full circle there. There's the need to articulate the vision. First of yeah. all, have the vision and articulate yeah. it and then get buy-in from your team by sharing ownership of yeah. that vision and editing it. And then reminding over and over like a third grade teacher what that vision is, where the story is mm -hmm. going. And then when we accomplish that goal, get away, mm -hmm. reset your mind, come up with a new vision and start over. Well, just in these summaries of the podcast that we've done, these great interviews that we've done, I think we've all probably learned the basics of running a really great business, the basics of excellence. These final two interviews that we do are with professional athletes. They're with people who operate at the top of their game. Ben Crane, professional golfer, Scott Hamilton next, who won a gold medal. What I wanted to learn from these guys was how do you do it? How do you just stay at the very top? How do you stay in a mode where you're just performing with excellence every day? And I was kind of comforted by this interview with professional golfer Ben Crane because he said, Don, there's just no silver bullet. You have to get up every day and you have to do the work, which to me said... Yeah, talent matters and skill matters and the stuff that you're born with matters. But if you wake up and have a work ethic where you get the job done, your competition may be beaten by you because they just didn't get up in the morning and do the work. Ben talks about how tomorrow's great performance is today's great habit. And he connects that what we do today is going to yield results tomorrow. There's this psychological study that I often reference in the StoryBurn framework. We use it when we talk about marketing, that when you think about who you are going to be a year from now, your brain psychologically assumes that that person is somebody else. So if you need to eat well in order to be in shape a year from now, or you need to exercise in order to be in shape a year from now, you're psychologically thinking, I need to eat well so that somebody else can enjoy their life, right? What I love about this clip from this interview with Ben is he has managed to connect his future self to his current self psychologically. And he just kind of teaches us a little trick or at least offers inspiration so that we can do the same thing, so that we associate what we do today with a tangible benefit that we're going to get tomorrow. 
Ben invited us into his lovely home. He showed us his practice facility. You guys, all you golfers, all you amateur golfers would be so jealous. It's just amazing. He's got this incredible setup in his house. And we sat down right there to talk about how to stay at the top of your game. What are the habits that matter? Here's a clip from my interview with Ben Crane. Well, driving over here, I was um, thinking about what you do and the pressure of what you do. And you're in a sport where you basically are trying to wake up every day and achieve perfection. And you can't. It's just not going to happen. And that got me wondering how you stay motivated. I mean, you have got to be excellent every single day. And we've all played golf. We all know we can hit a, an occasional good shot, and that kind of gets you hooked. How, how do you stay motivated mentally to keep pursuing it? Yeah, I mean, I don't really have any trouble with motivation. I'm always looking for ways to get better. That's just something God's put inside of me, and I just enjoy. I enjoy working at it. It's a gift. And so I don't have any problem with, with that. What I struggle with is I keep thinking. You know, I'm, I've been on tour now. This is my 15th year on tour. What I keep thinking and what I, I, I'm keep reminding myself that is not true is that I'm going to find the silver bullet, mm. that mentally I'm going to find the thought or I'm going to come across a way of thinking and, and it'll just get easier. And it never does, you know? And, and so it's so hard and, you know, hard work is hard. You have to make incremental little bits of growth each day and, and just build on it, you know? But the reality of it is that when I get in the tournament and when I get on that first tee, you're going to be nervous. It's going to be awesome. But what work did you do mentally to prepare for that and what will carry you? And that's the, you know, that's the thing that, that I cannot, if I go into it thinking, well, maybe this little silver bullet way of thinking will work and I'll just all of a sudden experience total peace when I'm playing. It doesn't exist, right? Mm. It's hard. It's yeah. just flat out hard. So, it's fascinating to me that you're, you're describing something that is true, very much true in life and in probably a lot of our businesses. And I just interviewed Ken Blanchard for the podcast and he talked about education because he has a PhD, is very similar to business and he learned about business from you know, working through Cornell to get his PhD is it's an endurance game. And like you, he mm -hmm. said, people start looking for the silver bullet, but the people who succeed are the people who just have these routines of getting up every day and putting a little something on the plot, having a kind of work ethic where they just keep going. And I have all these young writers come to me and they want to write a book or they want to be, you know, they, they think I've arrived, which I'm looking around going, I, I don't know if I've <laughs> I've not arrived. I don't know. Right. You know, I'm just working. You know, they bring me this really beautiful flower and they say, see, I want to be a writer. And I say, it's not a flower. It's a, it's a field that you plow with a tractor mm -hmm. at the right season every year mm. and you lose about 75% of the crop. <laughs> right. And all you're looking at is my tomato stand thinking it magically came, right? right. It, so it is just this work ethic every day that you get up and you keep doing it. And and I, I think I want to emphasize that and ask you if you think it's true, how much of it is skill, God-given talent, and how much of it is, man, I'm just out working you. I'm, you know, I'm just up every day working. Yeah. Yeah. So there's the hours, right? 10,000 hours. You know, I added up my hours a couple of years ago and I think I'm at 35,000, you know, mm -hmm. concentrated hours of purposeful practice and 
preparation. You're right. It's not the it's not these beautiful ripe tomatoes that just appear because you're gifted. I think it's the work ethic. I think it's the um, you know what I do today, what I do this morning matters. It really matters. Um, you know, and one of the the coach for the University of Miami uh, basketball team, they're in the you know Sweet Sixteen, and he says, you know, you can't just step into the NCAA tournament and turn it on, right? You have to turn it on this morning, seven days out, right? It's a it's a lifestyle, and so you know tomorrow's great performance is today's great habit. I think is the best way to describe it, right? Is that is that yeah we. We work, we till, we um, we spend time, you know, doing the things that matter each day, and you know, purposeful, meaningful practice, you know, today will show up tomorrow. That's something that I'm I'm learning. I'm yeah, I'm 15 years in, and um, feel like I'm starting to understand and 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 find my stride on how to improve at this game because it's it's hard. Scott Hamilton is a Nashville treasure. Well, he's an American treasure. He happens to live here in Nashville, but he's an inspiration to the world. Scott has survived cancer now two times. He's actually got another tumor, brain tumor. But through all of those unbelievably complicated and difficult and dark times, Scott managed to stay positive. He's just one of the most positive guys you'll ever meet. My whole staff was just at a dinner where hundreds of people came together, and Scott raised hundreds of thousands of dollars for his cancer foundation. So even off the ice, he is now still making the world a better place. He's just one of the guys that I admire most. In my interview with Scott, we actually went back to his performing days, and we talked about work ethic. We talked about what it takes to actually beat the competition. Specifically, what I wanted to get to with Scott was, how do you beat the guy who's better than you? I mean, a lot of us maybe don't have that skill or don't have quite that talent, but how do you beat the guy that's better than you? And Scott, not unlike Ben Crane, and it's a great way to close out these series of interviews, he just is very convincing that if you just outwork the person next to you, you got a really good chance of winning. I love Scott Hamilton. He's one of the most inspiring people in my life. He's teaching me how to work hard and finish first. And I think you're going to get the same kind of inspiration. Here's a clip from my interview with Scott Hamilton. Well, listen, you're working on this book, Finish First, and it's, I can't wait. And uh, I'm excited, you've yeah. got about 10 or 12 things that you've outlined. And, and what I love about it, it's not how to win, and Finish First is the same as win, but it's really about eyeing your competition and beating them. I mean, finishing first is a different mentality than uh, being a winner or trying your best. It's not trying your best. Finish first yeah. is not true. It's better than your best. I mean, you're really going to have to pull something out of you in order to, it's true. to get to this. And you've got 10 or 12 things we don't have time to talk about all, and people are going to have to buy the book in order to know. But some of them are kind of fascinating to me. One of them is just as practical and applicable to anybody in any profession Outwork everybody. Outwork everybody. And that's scary. Hard work, discipline, sacrifice. These are all things that people think it takes. Yeah. All it really is, is commitment repetition. Mm. It's showing up every day. You know, when I when I was learning how to skate, I had the right body. I had the right, you know, muscle twitch. I had all that stuff. I, I had no idea how to train. I didn't like compulsory figures. I didn't, you know, I didn't do all the basic stuff that allowed the other stuff to happen. And, you know, one day I just, I woke up and my mother was gone. And mm. she'd sacrificed everything to keep me in skating. And so it sort of awakened she in passed. me. She passed from, she died of cancer and, and she was the center of my universe. So mm. she sacrificed everything for my skating. And I was an underachiever. And I just decided that morning that I lost 
pastor that I was going to be everything that she thought I could be and that nothing was going to hold me back anymore. And so I learned how to be accountable to myself and her. You know, as she was there right with me every single day in spirit. And every day I'd show up and I'd just work a little harder. I'd work, I was more ambitious. I just, I was the first one on, last one off type of thing. Yeah. And that just, I mean, the the benefits of that just alone, of being the first one on, the last one off, of, you know, when I got tired at the end of a run through and I'd think of her and I would just power through the last minute, all of a sudden I have better lung capacity. I have strong, I'm stronger at the end of the program. I wanted to do all the, you know, I was just, I got hungry mm. and you know outwork everyone and that's as personal choices what the greatest days of my amateur skating career was when i found out that this kid that had 50 times more talent than me fell in love with pot it was the greatest day of my life because <laughs> i'm out of the race no because, yeah i mean i figured right then i go got him yeah. You know, he's way better than I'll ever be. I, I look at this wow. kid and I just, I'd see the effortless, you know, perfect edge quality, could do anything, rotate in the air as long as he wanted to. He could do anything he wanted, but he just made that that choice, that decision that he liked doing this more than he liked doing that. And I figured I got him. Is He'll there never be me. Is there something healthy to us, even in business, about... Every once in a while, I think I wonder what my competition is doing right now. They're probably working. They're probably getting. Well, how into do you that gauge yourself there. without that? Yeah. yeah. How do you gauge yourself? How do you where Where do you set the bar if you don't know what your competition is doing? Yeah. You know, and I, for me, the only way for me to break through because it was pretty competitive at that time was the threshold was you know everybody was doing up to like triple loop. Okay, so like different takeoffs of skating. Well, I wanted to do triple lots, and hmm. so I sacrificed my right hip for triple lots because I'd always come down a quarter turn short and I'd crash on my hip. Finally, I had, um, it was swollen from just above my knee to above my waist, right? It was swollen that much. Because you keep hammering it. Because I keep kept hammering it. it. And so finally, um, it developed a cyst. I had to have a surgery on it. And the where, where the surgery took place, it hurt so bad, I had to learn how not to fall on that hip anymore. Wow. And I got the jump. I mean, from that sacrifice, I got the jump and I was the first one to do it in the short program in the world, mm. right? And then from then on, it was like I was taken seriously because I had something maybe that they didn't. And wow. I had ability and all of a sudden they saw the promise of it. And so they bought in, you know, but it was, it all came down to, the, I think I've given a part of my body to every jump that I ever had to learn. Wow. And, and it's just, you know, what are you going to sacrifice? What are you going to, how are you going to, how are you going to outwork everybody? How are you going to do it? And a lot of it comes with just being, present showing up every day and the other part of it is just figuring out you know where your weaknesses are and getting past them and that's comforting for a lot of folks who feel like well, i don't quite have the talent don't quite have the resources no, you've got the work ethic i mean you, everybody can have the work ethic why if do they people want love to watch the olympics it's Be the, yeah it's the epitome of of countless hours of but you're inspired by it oh yeah you know yeah. and it's so great to see people doing something that they've never thought they could do you know the that's the dream, you know, and all, well, they're great athletes, they're elite, blah, 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 but they started from nothing. You see the pictures of those little kids and they're on the ski slopes and they're just tipping over, you know, yeah, just like, yeah. here, boom. <laughs> and then, you know, then you see what they become and all of that just, it's a hard work, sacrifice, determination. It's showing up. It's yeah. just showing up and, and just trying to figure out where your weaknesses are and just sort of chipping away at those to, to you know, kind of hone yourself to be better than you've ever been. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I want to thank you for listening to this summary of 2016. I think in a way it's the best podcast we've ever done because it has the most nuggets of wisdom and inspiration for us. Please do share this podcast with friends. If you have friends who don't know about StoryBrand or are struggling in business or just need some inspiration or some fresh light in the darkness of their everyday, do send this podcast to friends and let them know that we're here to help. The main reason we do this, the main reason StoryBrand exists, is because we believe that businesses can change the world. You know, those of you who know my personal story know that I spent a lot of years writing books, and they were Christian memoirs, and they were kind of in the self-help category, I guess you'd say. They were mostly memoir-esque. And I would get, you know, hundreds of people over the years have come to me and say that that made a difference in their lives, that they read something and felt less alone and all that kind of thing. I'm grateful for that. That was 15 years of an incredible journey as a memoirist. As I started StoryBrand and began to take businesses through this process that helps them clarify their message, through a process that makes sure they get seen, heard, and understood in the marketplace, and businesses came back to me and said, Don, we have had a 50% increase in our revenue. Don, we've had a 100% increase in our revenue. We've even had customers say that they have quadrupled their revenue after going through the StoryBrand process. And then they tell me what that meant. That meant that they could get out of debt. That meant that they could hire three new employees. That meant that everybody got a raise. That meant that they instituted a healthcare program in their company. That meant that specific people were able to buy a specific house that got their kids into a better school district. You know, I'm telling you, even one of those comments did more for me. It was more fulfilling than all the work I did in supposed kind of ministry, right? And the, the reason I'm saying that is because I believe your business can make a difference. I'm really kind of tired of politicians saying business is bad and everybody who runs a business is money hungry. You know, we helped 3,000 businesses this year clarify their message, 3,000 of them. I interacted with a lot of those people personally. I never met anybody who was money hungry. Everybody I met was worried about their business. They had a great dream. They had a great vision. They were trying to accomplish something great in the world. They were trying to help their employees, help their customers. It wasn't about them. It was about somebody else. And I, for one, respect your vision to build a business. I think business can really change the world. And if we have a bunch of business leaders, one of the secret Trojan horse goals of StoryBrand is that if we can create a bunch of business leaders who think about their teams first, who think about their customers first, we're going to change the world. If every business thinks, how can I make my customer's life better? And indeed, how can I make them better? How can I make them enjoy themselves more and love themselves more and want to change the world? I think we make the world a better place. Business is incredibly powerful. It can be a, a force for good and indeed already is a force for good. I know I'm preaching to the choir when I say that because you believe it, but I just wanted you to hear it from an outside voice. Your work matters. What you're doing matters. Of course, if there's anything we can do to help you here at StoryBrand, we're all in. We want your business to grow. We want your business to succeed because we believe it's important. I think part of all this is why the Building StoryBrand podcast has really taken off. We've become one of the most successful business podcasts on iTunes. We're very honored that you would listen, and we want to make it even better. We want to talk about the things that you want to hear about. We want to give you the tools that you need in order to win the day. If you want to contribute to the direction this podcast heads, go to buildingastorybrand.com backslash survey and take our survey and give us your feedback on the direction you think the podcast should head. Tell us what it is that you want to hear about. Tell us about the tools you would like to receive on the podcast, and we'll work hard to get all of that into 2017. I am incredibly grateful that you would listen. We have a blast doing this podcast. We hope you have a blast listening to it, and we're going to keep going and make it better and better. 
The music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. You can listen to Andrew Bell's music on Spotify or in iTunes. As always, thank you for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. Music